I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Lydia Dugdale. She's a primary care physician and medical ethicist. She serves as an associate professor of medicine and the director of the Center for Clinical Ethics at Columbia University. She previously served as the associate director of the Program of Biomedical Ethics at Yale. She's the author most recently of The Lost Art of Dying, a subject matter we're going to discuss today. Lydia, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So most people, I think, would um, cringe to think of dying as an art. Our culture is just uh, obsessed with reversing the dying process, which is in many respects, um, or often a process of aging, uh, between like plastic surgery and Botox, lip filler injections, Instagram modeling. Our, our culture just embraces the notion of holding tightly to, to youth and limitless possibility. And so the process of dying is not really thought of as an art, but as anathema to us. Your book urges us to think of dying differently, of dying as an art. So let's start with the question, what is the art of dying and, and where does it originate? Sure. I So I'll, just to kind of pick up on some of the comments you made, um, an art is... It, is anything that we do that requires practice and creativity and uh, habits um, and patience, right? So I think about art in so many different ways. There's the obvious way of, of the, the aesthetics, right? Painting, sculpting, et cetera. Uh, people often talk about cooking as an art, right? The creation of, of meals, new combinations of foods. In medicine, we talk regularly about the art of medicine. Uh, so what does that mean as opposed to kind of the application of technology, right? So the art of medicine is also the, the practice of a craft that is not applied the same way every time. Uh, there's creativity involved, there's discernment, there's new connections, and that often comes through the doctor-patient relationship. And so kind of taking some of these same themes and applying it then to, to dying or perhaps more broadly backing up to the preparation for death, uh, that's what I think of as the art of dying. Now, many cultures uh, going back to the beginning of sort of recorded history have talked about various approaches to preparing for death uh, for the dying process and then uh, rituals post-death. And I, you know, I'm, I'm no sort of scholar of all, all cultures uh, of all time. So to say, what is the art of dying? I, I can't answer that exhaustively, but I can talk to you about what the art of dying means in the context of my own work. And that is, uh, it, I use it to refer to a body of literature that developed in the 1400s during the aftermath of the bubonic plague that ravaged Western Europe. And the reason why I use this phrase, the art of dying, is because this genre of literature that developed was in Latin referred to as the ars moriendi, which quite literally is interpreted art of dying. So, so you know, for, for our purposes, for my purposes, the art of dying really is a genre of literature by that very same name, uh, though, of course, T taking a broader view, it can apply uh, across time and to various cultures. Yeah, uh, just from the book, it it seems like there was this 
understanding acceptance of the end and uh, and people needed or provided for themselves constant reminders that the end could come at any time and that if you accept this that there is this leads to uh an art of living is is that right that's right uh well so i'll 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 amend one thing and that is that i i'm actually a little bit loath to use the word accept death and i don't use it throughout the book i talk about the acknowledgement of death because i think that a person could still die well without wanting to die right i, I mean it, it's it's natural for us to want to stay with our communities our families um to continue to live it's a very natural expression of the human experience and so we you know this is sort of in contrast to elizabeth kubler ross who popularized these five stages of grief and you know ultimately your your its acceptance and i don't know that we need to accept death death almost always rips a hole in the fabric of our communities it's uh it's it's destructive uh it's uh it's an insult it's it hurts and so to say that we need to accept it uh, i think there are times and situations where people are are so sick and they've suffered for so long it certainly makes sense to kind of almost welcome death right and and people in in families in those circumstances will often describe perhaps somewhat um sometimes with a kind of embarrassed uh affect saying you know i I, I welcomed it. It was a relief, right? It was a relief when he finally died. And that's normal. When the suffering's been so prolonged, there's a whole lot of anticipatory grief that takes place so that when the person actually dies, whew, you know, the suffering is over. Um, so, so yeah, the, the Ars Moriandi, though, a central concept, a central sort of theme of the Ars Moriandi, this art of dying was that the art of dying was very much wrapped up in the art of living. Because dying uh, and preparing for death wasn't something you just sort of saved up for old age, whatever that was, which was like the 40s. <laughs> but it was it was something that you knew was always on the table, uh, especially prior to the modern era, right? More than 100 years ago, uh, even I, I was less than that, less, less than 100 years ago. But so we had antibiotics in what, 1927 was when penicillin was first discovered. So really before the 20s, 30s and 40s, uh, life was so precarious and people lived with it. People lived with a sense of precarity. Uh, so if it wasn't disease or, you know, women dying in childbirth birth or babies dying before the age of one or children before the age of five, all of these things, which were very common, um, people did tend to live to old age, old age being the 40s. But still, to have a life expectancy of 30 or 40 years, if you survived those first five, still meant that people were seeing a lot more death than we see when, you know, granddad lives until his late eighties or nineties and is now in a nursing home and we don't see him anyway. Um, the, and then of course, children and babies aren't dying at the same rates and women aren't dying in childbirth at the same rate. So there's so many things that are different because of the application of, of modern medicine, which is wonderful, which is absolutely a good, um, at the same time, it means we're just not seeing death in the same way. So yeah, the Ars Moriendi, this art of dying was um, the preparation for death, the really the lifelong preparation for death integrated into living. And, and, and really the idea was that if you want to die well, and in the earliest iterations of the Ars Moriendi, dying well was kind of cultivating a certain character. 
so so dying well was not dying, you know, with this kind of rage and anger and impatience and insistence on getting it over with and hopeless, but rather dying well was sort of the the exercise of of patience and the the cultivation of um of of uh community and the cultivation of generosity and the nurture of of relationships the building of faith right that was especially the earliest iterations came out of the western church so there was this sense that dying well also had this very strong religious component um but but those things don't just happen at the end those are things that you really need to practice throughout your life uh which is how dying well then is uh, equated with living well does that help is that kind of clarifying absolutely yeah and one of the some of the interesting statistics that you mentioned in the book um, and some of your other work is that in 1908, so 14% of all deaths in the U.S. occurred in institutions. In 1914, that was 25%. And in the 90s, it was closer to 80%. And, and yet 80% of Americans want to die at home. So while it used to be very clear when someone died, we also now rely on physicians to declare someone's death. It's interesting because I think medicine can be somewhat deceptive. As physicians, we inhabit this world of the sick and the world of the dead and dying, or at least we have a good deal of exposure to it. On the other hand, it's opaque to people for most of their lives. And patient family members are, at least in my own experience, they're shocked oftentimes when death comes. They say, oh, but she was just awake and speaking yesterday. And so those outside of medicine oftentimes think death is far off in the distance, no matter how close it approaches. So can you speak a little bit about the medicalization of death and and how this has happened, how we've sort of gotten away from from Ars Moriendi? Yeah, so uh, really good questions. If you think about, um, so I alluded to the birth of antibiotics in the 20s, which were really mainstream by the 40s. By the 40s, we also have early chemotherapies, which became combo chemotherapies in the 70s. By the 50s and 60s, we have early attempts at resuscitation, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, and uh, organ transplantation. And that's extraordinary. It's extraordinary to think that infectious diseases that used to kill people no longer killed people, that people who died of organ failure uh, no longer had to die of that. obviously with all kinds of caveats because organs are limited, but still, right, what technology, what medical advances made possible um, is uh, many, many, uh, you know, renewed shots at life, if you will, right? Uh, We all have nine lives now uh, is another way to put it. And, uh, And the expectation then has become that medicine's always going to bail us out. Anyone who was born post-World War II, so baby boomers and younger, up until the last two years with COVID, has not experienced the, the kind of expectation that death is just a reality. Uh, and then you couple this advance in medical technology with, with many other things, such as the rise of the hospital. So, uh, you know, those, those statistics are in my book, but it's something like in the nine, uh, sorry, in the 1860s, around the time of civil war in the U.S., there were only a few hundred hospitals. But by 1910, 1920, there were on the order of 6,000 hospitals. It's something like that. I don't, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. But this many, many, many fold increase in hospitals 
along with the rise of industrialization, so people moving out of kind of family farms and homesteads where there was space and there was, you know, a lot of people around, people were moving to the cities for work, living in small flats, crowded, often crowded, especially, you know, a hundred years ago. Uh, so there weren't people to care for the sick. Uh, there wasn't space to care for the sick and there was a huge increase in the number of hospitals. So we were able to effectively shuttle care of the sick and dying out of the home into an institution. So people stopped seeing that. And then that was associated with the rise in medical technology, which then made it the obvious conclusion for what we should do with a sick or dying person. Of course, they should go to the hospital because in the hospital, there are antibiotics. In the hospital, there is life support, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so th that's sort of you know a combination of, of the factors that I think really pushed the dying process out of our field of view. And I think also... It's worth just highlighting historically what happened. So we have U.S. Uh, involvement in World War I was from 1914 to 1918. It was a devastating war. There were millions and millions and millions of people who died, uh, both soldiers and civilians worldwide. It was devastating globally. And even before the Civil War, uh, sorry, World War I, I keep saying the Civil War, even before World War I ended, there's the outbreak of the influenza pandemic of we say of 1918, but the truth is it was 1918 to 1920, right? I mean, just like COVID-19 is COVID-19 to COVID-2022. Uh, this was a at least a two-year pandemic. Uh, epidemiologists think major, maybe uh, four major waves, but that also was devastating. And just to get a sense of, you know, the magnitude of the flu pandemic of 1918 to 20 on the U.S., uh, there were 675,000 deaths at a time when the U.S. population was one third of what it is now. So when we start seeing COVID deaths at around, say, 2, 2.2 million in the U.S., that's when it will feel like it felt during that two years of flu. So you have this six-year period in the United States of sustained death, death from war, followed by death from flu. And what we see is post uh, flu pandemic. There was an economic boom in the United States. We have the roaring 1920s, the roaring 20s, time of immense prosperity. And then there's a radical, radical shift in culture. So there's new music, new dancing, uh, motion pictures, more people getting automobiles after the war, a lot a building boom. Women get the right to vote. Uh, and with all of this newfound independence and sort of cultural remaking, there was a strong desire to put aside the old ways of preparing for death, right? So who wants to hang a ribbon on the front door to signify that a child had died or that a, a family member had died? They used to do that. It would tell the community a death has befallen us. Well, no one wanted to do it. Women did not want to dress in mourning anymore. This is a time of short skirts and cropped hair. Uh, women were not going to go about in this traditional mourning garb for a year after the death of a, a spouse, say. So radical shift. And then that combined with the rise in the hospital and, um, and the boom in medical innovation really put death far, far away from the, the average daily experience. Yeah. Can you um, talk a little bit about some of the other uh, practices that helped uh, or that were in, intimately involved in, in the art of dying? 
So, so, you know, this, this art of dying, this Ars Moriendi genre of literature really came into its own in the early 1400s. And it came, it developed in response to the bubonic plague of the mid 1300s. And you say, well, people were living 45 years. Why did it take, you know, 60 years or 50 plus years for this genre of literature to develop? And there's a reason for that uh, that gets into to politics and really who the social authority was, which was the Western church and the church's own problems with having multiple men claiming to be pope and all, all this like, you know, complicated political stuff. But when, uh, and I guess it's also worth pointing out that in the late Middle Ages in Western Europe, the leading social authority really was the church. It, it wasn't so much a political leader. Um, and then there's kind of one church at that point. So it was sort of the uh, church. So when people said, wow, we've just had this massive loss of life from the mid thir- mid-1300s bubonic plague outbreak, which historians estimate that perhaps as many as two-thirds of Western Europeans died from that particular plague outbreak. May The low end is 30%. But still, if you say one out of three or two out of three of people you see on the street are dead from plague, that is that is revolutionary. It's at the same time revolutionary and completely devastating to a society. The society has to completely remake itself. And so the people who survived the bubonic plague of the mid-1300s turned to their authority, i.e. the Western church, and said, hey, Look, the priests skipped town or they died from plague. They're the ones who are supposed to tell us what to do with death. They're the ones who help us make sense of these tumultuous times. And they're not here. So we want to be empowered to anticipate death and to prepare for it. And that, oh, and so when the church finally worked out its its issues, then their first kind of response to the people was to, to provide a handbook on the preparation for death. And that's it doesn't come directly from the church. It's complicated who the authorship was. It's actually unknown, but there's a strong sense that's probably tied to someone who sat on a council for the church. At any rate, so I say all that to say that you ask about, well, what, what practices were involved? Well, then it depends on what version of the Ars Moriendi are we talking about? Because these earliest iterations were Western church uh, in the, in the, Christian church, there's a big split between Catholics and Protestants in the early 1500s, but this predates that. But once you have Protestantism in the 1500s, you have Protestant versions, which is, you know, sort of classic Protestant move is to break away from the Catholics and make their own version. And then there are, uh, there develop, even by the time of the Civil War, uh, former president of Harvard University, Drew Faust, has this wonderful book on death in the, during the Civil War. And she talks about Jewish conceptions of the Ars Moriendi, and then straight up secular conceptions. So really, one of the things that drew me to the Ars Moriendi is that while it had this initial uh, sort of um, birth, if you will, this uh, initial um, gestation period within the Western church, pre-Reformation Western church, it didn't stay uh, Christian. It actually adapted and was adopted for different cultures, uh, different religious groups, for the non-religious. And so Drew Faust in her book, This Republic of Suffering, writes that, you know, to paraphrase, by the time of the U.S. Civil War, whether you were from the North or the South, if you were brought up well, the preparation for death was just part of life. This was just something that you did. And so the soldiers became very obsessed with this. I mean, they, they knew they were formed in this way that if they were dying on the battlefield, 
it was of the utmost importance that they communicated to a buddy what their last words were so that their families back home would know that they had died as they had lived and that those last words would sort of sum up their commitments you know to god to country to humanity they but 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 communicating this was very important and then surviving soldiers were very committed to writing down these last words and putting them into a letter and sending them to the soldiers families so that it it was it was clear to everyone that that the art of dying had been carried out that they had they had died well just as they had lived well so um you know so so to answer your original question then, what are some of these earlier practices? It, it all depends. So there was this idea of it doesn't really matter what you believe or don't believe, but communicating clearly at the end is important for, for sort of uh, reflecting back on how you lived. But there were uh, very well circumscribed um, practices that were part of the Ars Moriandi. And so thinking about the original late medieval versions, um, the, there were prescribed uh, prayers and protocols. There were words that the, the community was supposed to utter on behalf of the dying. And then there were words that the dying person was supposed to, uh, to say uh, in response to community questions. So a kind of catechism, a, a question and answer. Um, and that was to sort of affirm beliefs and put everyone on the same page. There were um, there were character traits or virtues that people were encouraged to exercise over the course of their lives. There was definitely a sense that the dying person was an actor in a great drama, and not only any actor, but the dying person was actually the lead actor. And the Ars Moriandi was understood, uh, it was understood that all community members had a role in this great drama. So if the dying person is a central actor, then everyone else in the community is an understudy for that lead role. Because at some point, every member of the community, including children, were part of this, would one day be the lead actor. And so some of that came through this, you know, this question and answer, this kind of call and response um, but it also came through prayers and and rituals, and then of course the rituals uh, depended very much on on what religious tradition you're talking about. A very different, uh, I would say, between the the um, well, between some versions of Protestantism and Catholicism, but also between Christian and, and Jewish, um, they're very different rituals. And then and then there there was also an a push, especially in the kind of I would say more secular era of the last hundred years when uh, we attended less to dying practices that there have uh, arisen some very specific kind of secular or non-religious rituals as relates to uh, dying and death. So I'll just stop there and see if you, <laughs> I kind of threw a whole lot at you, but see if you have any follow-up questions. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely want to get to community and rituals. It, it seems to me such an integral part of all of this. But first, I want to talk about ignoring finitude, because Jeffrey Bishop, a physician and medical ethicist, has written that this paradox, the fact that our finitude both takes meaning and value away from us and tells us what we find meaningful and valuable, is at the heart of the human condition. Uh, and there's a whole body of psychology literature on this as well that when humans are near to the end, 
no matter how old or young they are, they tend to appreciate life more. They actually tend to be happier. And you ask the question in the book, can we die well if we refuse to acknowledge our finitude? Uh, and I want to ask that question back just so our listeners have a chance to hear your answer. Can we die well if we refuse to acknowledge our finitude? And, and if not, why not? Right. So no <laughs> is the short answer. We cannot die well if we ignore our finitude. Uh, so I have an earlier before this book that we're talking about, The Lost Art of Dying, I have a, an academic book, an edited book. Actually, Jeffrey Bishop writes a chapter in that book um, where the, the project was to imagine with a group of scholars, physicians, philosophers, theologians, bioethicists, if we were to come up with an Ars Moriendi or an art of dying today, what would it look like and what form would it take? And the conclusion of that book, in the conclusion, I say that if we're to boil down all of these various iterations of the Ars Moriendi texts, and we were to extract what, was, what were the central components, that it would only come down to two things. One is the acknowledgement of human finitude, and two is the role of community that you cannot have an art of dying if a person lives and dies in solitude. Now, that you know, you, there are people who choose sort of to live monastic lifestyles, so they're still in community, right? So true isolation, the lonely dying, the lonely deaths that we hear about, that we, we heard a lot about during the height of the first wave of COVID, um, there is a way in which a lifetime in isolation and a, a dying process in isolation is, is an anathema to the Ars Moriendi. So that's, that's the one piece. And then the second piece is the question that you ask, which is um, how can we die well if we choose to ignore our finitude? Anything that we do in life that we do well requires some amount of preparation or practice. If we, you know, so yeah, silly example, I have um, never really gone rock climbing. I have tried it a couple of times, but I've never really gone rock climbing. And for me to sort of climb a rock where I should be harnessed and, you know, like flailing above my death, that would require a certain amount of preparation. Uh, it, even if I'm not an expert even if I'm completely scared out of my mind, that it would require a certain amount of preparation to, to even do it a little, a little bit well. And, and death is the same way. You know, most of us have not experienced it. Physicians and those who, you know, clergy um, often have quite a lot of experience with death. That, and that helps us think about our own deaths. But the sort of average person on the street who's never seen death not experienced it for himself or herself, not worked in any capacity, and then is expected to die well when he or she spends a lifetime trying not to think about finitude, it just won't happen. Uh, so I wish I could give you something that was more poetic than that, but I don't, I don't really have anything. It's just sort of, I, I don't know, common sense even that to do anything well, we need to at least give it a little bit of forethought. And death is the same way. 
It doesn't mean we have to be, yeah, it doesn't mean we have to be morbid or sort of fixate on it. I mean, there are people who do that too. Um, I I enjoy talking about it and writing about it, but I I wouldn't say I, you know, am necessarily morbid or uh, obsessed (laughs) with with it. Um, But at the same time, it's, it's a, it's a fact of life, right? It is a fact of life. Mortality has always been 100%. And there aren't very many things in life, by the way, that are 100%. Uh, so why is it that we try to ignore the one that is absolutely guaranteed? Anyway. Yeah, I, I, there's an example you give in the book of, of the public intellectual Susan Sontag and her um, tragic struggle with death and, uh, and illness. Uh, and, it, it, you know, you describe how she really took every medication and enrolled in every trial, struggled really kind of mightily against uh, death despite all the devastating side effects that she experienced from the interventions. Um, And you say the fear of death has seemed to be the driver, not the desire to live. Uh, And I thought that was really spot on. Can you explain what you meant by this? Um, As it seems it, it would be applicable to so many of us when death creeps up on the horizon. That's right. I say also in that section of the book that perhaps fear of death and desire to live are two sides of the same coin. Probably for most of us, the desire to live is kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's what's on our mind. Um, But in terms of which is the stronger emotion and which is going to compel us or propel us, it's fear, right? Fear is what sort of gets the fight or flight mechanism going and causes us to move and sometimes to move in even irrational ways, which, I mean, perhaps that's not a kind word to use with regard to Susan Sontag, but in her son's memoir, he really wrestles with just her decision to not let anyone speak to her of death, even when it was clear she was dying of her third cancer. Um, uh, Just, yeah. So, uh, you know, another analogy might suffice, right? I could, I live in New York City. I could be late for work. I could maybe try to walk a little bit faster or hop in a taxi instead of take the subway, just try to move along. But if I have a boss, which I don't have a boss that fits this description, but if I have a boss who is vindictive and angry and threatening to fire me, if I arrive to work late, you can bet I'm going to move a lot faster, right? A lot faster. I, I would probably sprint or, you know, fly or something. I would get there uh, because I don't, I don't want to suffer the repercussions. And I think that's, that's sort of like this fear of death versus desire to live. Like, I don't want to get to work late. Uh, but if it's not a fear, I'm not going to move quite as fast. I'm not going to make the same decisions as if I'm being threatened. And when we really get, it was when, when some patients, I'll say when some people really get close to the end of life um, and start to choose to cling to technology in a way that makes no sense. I mean, doctors and nurses will say, no, 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 like it's not going to do anything. And in New York state, for example, if a patient wants to continue life support, even when the patient is actively decaying internally um, or the family wants to continue life support by law, we are bound we physicians are bound to continue that life support. So sometimes the law even um, not encourages, but it facilitates the the actions that are fear-based 
uh, over just the desire to live. And, and I do think, I think they're so closely related. It, it's hard to tease them out, but when the move is really one that is, uh, just doesn't quite make sense. Um, it's often fear driven. Yeah. There's a know. subtle, yeah. subtle difference there. I think that has, uh, in, intense consequences. Yeah. One of uh, one of the moving passages in the book for me uh, was when you discuss your intent to speak with patients about death. You write, I don't pretend to have easy answers, but I'm willing to go there with my patients. And somehow these conversations imbued with mystery and fear transform our relationships. I cease to be a provider. What good or service can I possibly provide? Instead, I again become a physician, a healer who aspires to see her patients flourish. Can you elaborate on this by having a frank conversation about death with your patients? How does it make you into a physician instead of a provider? Yeah. So, so partly I was, it's a, a little bit of an annoyance of mine to use this language for physicians or nurses or physician assistants of provider. Um, the language of provider assumes that I am merely uh, a human agent in wish fulfillment for a consumer. And that's not what a doctor is. In fact, I don't, well, some doctors are that. Uh, so, so you mentioned earlier lip fillers and uh, plastic surgery. I think there's a way in which some cosmetic surgery that is not at all medically indicated is a little bit more akin to provider and consumer. But I'm a primary care doctor where, you know, 60% of what I do is handholding anyway. And then I don't say that uh, in a negative way. I, I love it. That's what I love about doctoring is the building relationships, the getting into the sticky stuff. Um, you, you know, anybody, almost anybody can adjust a blood pressure medicine, really. I mean, truly, uh, this stuff you can, well, you can look up on charts and algorithms. It's all out there. But to combine the clinical knowledge and the knowledge of a, of a human body and how it works and the sort of existential awareness of life and death questions and of patients and personal mortality. And then to do all this in the context of a relationship that is nurturing, that is really the work of healing. That's the art of medicine that's the uh, the beauty of what a physician, that is a, a person who attends to the, the physical, right, um, can do. And, uh, and I think that's very different from being a service provider. Um, I don't, you know, have a re relationship with a retail clerk in quite the same way. Uh, some people do have that relationship, for example, with their barista. Uh, where the barista ends up being a little bit more of a, you know, a psychologist or something to them. But uh, I think for most of our sort of daily consumption, our consumption provider relationships, they don't have the quality that, that I just described that I think is, is maybe perhaps a little bit aspirational, but I continue to aspire to that with my patients, even when the sort of circumstances of medicine are uh, set up, especially the economics of medicine are set up to not allow that. But I think that's what we need to keep going back to. How has this been received, this kind of frank frankness about death? Uh, how have your patients received it? So it's funny. So in primary care, we're supposed to annually at the annual wellness visit for Medicare, we're supposed to ask about end of life wishes and kind of bring the question up. 
So I have a, a, a checklist for my patients to fill out while they're waiting. And uh, there's always a box, you know, do you want to talk with your doctor about end of life wishes? And invariably they always check no. So what I say is, Mrs. Smith, I know you check no on the thing, but let me just ask you one question. If you were to become really sick and weren't able to tell us sort of what your wishes were, who should we call? Okay, so that's like step one. And then that opens the door a little bit. And, oh, you want us to call, you know, your sister. Okay, does your sister, would she be equipped to answer questions about what your wishes are? Um, well, Mrs. Smith says, you know, I've never talked to her about it. Okay. Well, so then we just talk a little bit more about what some of these basic things are. You know, there's a big debate about whether advanced directives, you know, the so-called DNR form actually makes a big difference. I'm less interested in whether my patients fill out a form and check boxes or don't check boxes than having the conversation. Uh, once I, I wrote an article about how, uh, we should see, a what's it called? Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, that we should see that as a day to sit down with our loved ones and talk about end of life wishes. Because if Black Friday is supposed to be a shopping and a consumption day and a day when we're thinking about what it means to live well, why can't we also think about what it means to die well? And if we have this conversation annually with our families, then when we end up in the ICU and the doctors are turning to our you know, sibling and saying, what would she want? What, how, you know, how are we supposed to take care of her? Our families are a little bit more informed. So yeah, I forgot what your original question was. <laughs> <laughs> how has it uh, been received by your oh. patients when you bring this up? So I've had thousands of patients, but I'll say that fewer than probably a half dozen have actually freaked out on me. Uh, I do remember one woman in her eighties quite vividly. It was maybe our second meeting and she was there for her annual. And so I was sort of going through what I just said to you, you know, well, who would you want to make decisions? And have you ever thought about this? And she turned on me and she said, I am 83 or something like that. I am not about to die. What are you, Dr. Death? And I thought, oh my goodness, she doesn't know the half of it. But um, she did not come back to see me. It was too much for her. And uh, and I, and I, it was the same thing that I just told you. I wasn't sort of, wasn't overwhelming with my, just trying to nudge a little bit so that we could start the conversation, but fewer than a half dozen, maybe fewer than five out of thousands of patients over whatever, I don't know, 17 years have, have responded that way. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I totally sympathize with that because if you live your entire life, not thinking about it or, or. I don't understanding that there's a, an ending. Uh, I think if if you s- are suddenly faced with it, it's really hard to deal with that. There's like some cognitive dissonance there that's just, I think, very difficult to overcome. Yeah, and high achieving people also. Um, so my practice when I lived in Connecticut, I had a lot of you know Yale Yale University people, uh, and it was interesting. There were definitely some people that you know, to hear sort of really high functioning, um, high performing, high achieving men in their sixties to hear that they could have a heart problem, for example, that, you know, some of them would just 
they they'd lose it. And uh, it, it was hard for them to grapple with that. Um, and I think that was sort of related to their mortality. They might be able to be very diplomatic and answer questions about advanced directives. But when it came to the actual threat, yes, uh, many people cannot imagine uh, that that something could bring them down. So, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. They also, I mean, I think people feel like they do everything right. We eat healthy, we exercise, I, um, you know, I keep my mind uh, nimble. And it's, it's, this is not a cure for death. This is, um, you know, a way of remaining healthy for a longer period of time, but it's not a cure for it. And I think sometimes we get that confused, maybe. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the you mentioned the the COVID pandemic a couple of times, and I I thought one of the most devastating policies. I mean, it was really cringy for me to watch this play out. Uh, was the barring of visitors from hospitals, forcing patients to die in in intensive care units without family or community by their bedsides, uh, and and FaceTime was only sometimes the best that most medical centers could do. Um, and by the way, I think that. Some medical centers um, are still doing this to a certain extent, uh, which, again, is very unsettling for me. But I, I think of these as kind of like sterile deaths happening outside the view of any community members inside a negative pressure room, um, isolated from, from the world. Uh, talk to us a bit more. I know you'd mentioned it earlier, but talk to us a bit more about the importance of community in Ars Moriendi. What what are the layers of community? What's the community's role, whether religious or secular, in in dying well? Sure. Um, we human beings are fundamentally relational creatures. Uh, we thrive in relationship. And, you know, sometimes when I speak on the book, people will ask me in the Q&A, well, you know, they'll say I'm a loner or I'm an introvert. And I look, I have one friend in the world and that's it. And that is that community. And, and I say, yes, that's community. I, you, We all need somebody. We don't need dozens and dozens, but we need somebody. Um, more than one is probably a little bit of a safer hedge if you're, if you're going to, but uh you know, we don't need a lot of people, but we need, we do need intimate relationships, uh, people who know us. We, as relational creatures, we long to know others and to be known. Um, it's so deep to what it means to be human. And so, you know, in the book, I talk about three layers of community and the, the sort of first is this very intimate level of community. Maybe it's family, maybe it's not family. And, you know, sometimes people say to me, well, like I'm estranged from my family or I've created a new community. That's fine. If you've got a new community, that's fine. If they're, if it's not blood relatives, but you need to have people who know you and you know them and they've got your back and they won't abandon you when you're sick. Uh, this is a big challenge for an aging population, especially people, you know, in the so-called fourth age, which is like older than 85 or so, you know, we have these folks in their late nineties who are still living independently and driving. And yet everyone they know is dead. Um, and so it, we, I think there's a, a, a role for us looking across uh, ages to see where the needs are. I mean, who are your neighbors kind of thing? Um, something I was thinking about a lot over the holidays, uh, just the kind of lonely individuals out there. Anyway, 
So community is the first layer is kind of intimate family community. And then there is this layer of societal community that I talk about. And this would be, you know, maybe this is more service oriented. Maybe it's a religious community. Um, you know, you're sick. What does your congregation do for you? you know, are they bringing your family meals? Are they checking up on you in the hospital? Right. Um, that sort of thing. It's also the, the kind of services like the um, meals on wheels or, um, my my uncle for years after he retired helped drive older uh or impaired folks to their doctor's appointments this was like one of his he loved to volunteer and just serve and he did this and now he's quite elderly and on dialysis and the same service that he drove for for years now picks him up three times a week to drive him to dialysis um so that's sort of the societal level of community, which is there are people close by, but not necessarily that intimate. And then there's this third level of community for so many people, which is the biomedical community, who, who your team of doctors and nurses, many people who end up in hospice or even in the hospital as they're declining will have, they'll know who their doctor is, their oncologist is, their palliative care doctor, you know, their nurses are, their social workers are. That is a level of community that is really important, especially um, toward the end of life. So. Yeah, I mean, why is community important? It, it 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 does, as you said earlier, it helps us make sense of what we value, what we believe. It helps bring that into relief. Sometimes community can propel us to engage more in the things that really matter. It helps us articulate what matters, and then we we will engage more in those, um, especially as we see you know time being of the essence. Um, community is supportive. You know, it is hospitable. Uh, if the hospital, you know, going back to what was it, the third century, Basil of Caesarea, the first kind of model of the Western hospital, if that was really meant to provide hospitality to the wayfarer, the poor, the sojourner, um, how is it that our own communities are providing us hospitality? Um, how are we as, you know, able-bodied, healthy people providing hospitality to those in our community who um, are sick? Uh, are dying, I think, and hospitality doesn't necessarily have to be physical, but there's a sort of relational hospitality that goes along with community. So I think all of those things kind of combine. Hmm. And, and rituals seem to be a vital part of the community's response to death, whatever layer of community that is. Um, you, you write, they can serve as a guide in the midst of chaos, gently leading mourners through the shocking numbness of initial loss. From within the embrace of community, the bereaved are permitted to mourn. And through the phases of mourning, they are slowly accompanied back into daily life. And, and I imagine for the dying, uh, too, that um, knowing that the rituals are there to support their loved ones or community eases their passing. Um, and we know rituals are deeply embedded in religion. I mean, in Judaism, there's Shiva, there's you know these, these seven days of mourning. And um, I mean, it's a year-long kind of process. But how might a secular community, one that is maybe spiritual, but not religious, engage in, in rituals to help with Ars Moriendi. Yeah, what I love about ritual is that it's sort of like the blueprint for when uh, when it's totally chaotic, when life just is kind of feels like it's falling between our fingers, right? And, and death, certainly a death that's unexpected, whew, so upsetting. It just especially that first 24 hours after you hear about a death that was unanticipated, it, everything is tumultuous and ritual sort of tells you what to do. 
And one of the things, I mean, you brought up the, the death rituals of Judaism, but one of the things I love about those is they're so clear so clear, so well-written. They kind of coincide with like the modern psychological views of death, you know, that sort of normal grieving takes a year. And, um, uh, and, and one of the reasons I kind of call people in the book to think about ritual, it's not prescriptive. I'm not saying these are the rituals you should follow, but because so much has been written for so many years on ritual, uh, some of this stuff is very well worked out. So it's not that we need to start from scratch and say, okay, you know, when dad dies, you know, we're going to, um, you know, do X, Y, or Z. There's a, I tell a story in the book about a gentleman who is, uh, I think, formerly Catholic, kind of new agey, but, you know, his he and his partner thought that um, maybe his spirit remains with the body for a couple of days. So she laid him in the garden after he died. And, you know, it's, so it's sort of a new ritual. I don't know. I don't know fully what the, the belief system was and the, the article from the New York times doesn't really uh, totally say. Um, so, so you asked about spiritual, but not religious or even secular folks. There are different versions of these rituals in the hospital. Of course, removing the breathing tube is its own kind of ritual, right? Um, even our, our family meetings in hospitals, when we're talking about just how things go, those kind of follow a certain script that is rather ritualistic in many ways. Um, so these things exist, but I, uh, I really encourage folks to go back to the the traditions, and even if they're not, you know, religious or people of faith, um, there's so much uh, in the 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 deeper wisdom traditions uh, that describe ritual that it just makes sense. Uh, really gives that roadmap, that blueprint. One other thing I'll say is, if you go to a lot of you know, kind of modern memorial services, which memorial services tend to be distinguished from funerals because of the um, absence of the body that they often happen, not, you know, related, not necessarily related in time to the death, but they might be a couple months later when people can kind of work it in their schedules to, to get together. The body usually isn't there. Um, and there will, it will often sort of follow a liturgy sort of a, some sort of religious liturgy, there'll be a reading, there'll be a poem, there'll be songs. Um, and so you, we do see that there is already a kind of a riff, a riff on, um, what the religious traditions have to offer it among, among non-religious folks. Um, I don't think it's bad, but I do think this is something that's worth attending to, especially if you aren't religious. And so you don't really have that blueprint written out. It's worth thinking about, uh, what, might make sense before you get to the end. Again, this is part of that preparation, um, just so that you've got your kind of blueprint in place. Mm. A couple of last questions, I think, that are sort of um, maybe incidental to some of the things we've been talking about. Uh, you know, I'm curious, the physician-assisted suicide movement or is often referred to as the death with dignity movement. It is that we can control how and when we die. The logic goes, we can avoid the indignities of dying. So, you know, relying on someone 24-7 to go to the bathroom, brush teeth, eat, et cetera. We don't need to necessarily get into normative claims about physician-assisted suicide, but as a proponent of Ars Moriendi, how do you view this concern of, or how does this concern fit into Ars Moriendi? 
Yeah, I think as a society, we need to do a much uh, better job of practicing the art of being a burden. If we were to practice that, right, to to be a burden um, and to receive the burdens of others, it would make these questions of care of the dying and being a burden at the end of life a lot less powerful. Um, the, the, the argument would sort of lose its steam. Yes, we know from looking at data in Oregon and Washington state, where the two states that have legalized physicians to suicide the longest in this country, that the vast majority of people who choose it, it's not, they're not choosing it because of pain. They're choosing it because they don't want to be a burden. I mean, 90% of people, they don't want to be a burden. They don't want to, um, have to give up things that make life meaningful. And, and if, if that's why people are choosing to shorten their lives, then we need to change the narrative. Um, at least the Ars Moriandi would make the case that we need to change the narrative because community and being a burden and having our opportunity both to be cared for and to care for others is really central to, to that, to, to relationality. Um, we don't, I mean, there's this idea that we can be in community as long as we're in positions of being able to serve and not be served. Um, and there's, but the thing is, is there's a, there's a time and season for, for both. And it is really hard for us with our Western mindset to um, be willing to be on the receiving end of care, but that's going to require a cultural shift. I mean, maybe, you know, I mean, maybe there'll be a small amount of shift with COVID, but I, I doubt very much. And I think that ties by the way, into uh, the kind of trend you've noticed with high achievers, because uh, I think they're so used to being independent and able to do everything themselves. And um, suddenly when they feel like, oh, I might need to rely on someone else, that this is anathema to them. It's just what a horrible thought. Yeah. Uh, and, th- and that's exactly the group of people that's, you know, the strongest voice lobbying in favor of legalization, right? The people who are marginalized and vulnerable and suffering from disabilities often are not the group of people who also want to end their lives early um, because they're people who've all already had to fight to be recognized and be treated equitably by the healthcare system. So anyway, yeah, there's a lot yep. more to say about that. <laughs> yes. Uh, so last question, uh, your book came out in 2020 and with COVID-19, millions of people have died during the pandemic. And your book was some, in some ways a call to change the culture surrounding death. Do you think COVID-19 has altered things in some way or is it too early to tell? Yeah. So uh, I, I've probably, I don't know, given 90 or hundred talks on the book since it was published and they've all been during the pandemic. The book was written, the full manuscript was written uh, more than a, a year and a half before the book was published. So I, you know, riff off the bubonic plague in the book. And yet I didn't know that we were going to be in a global pandemic when it was published. Uh, It's been interesting giving these talks because for baby boomers and older, I think that the conversation has changed. Um, Many, many people have gotten their wills together. They've made decisions to travel or not to travel, depending on the risks they wanted to take uh, with regard to their relationships, their own aging, their own health. So there are, you know, grandparents who will travel despite the risks because it matters that they see their grandkids because they might not see them again. And then there are other folks who say, you know, the best thing I can do is kind of 
quarantine until all of this is passed so I can be alive for much longer. So you, you see both things, but all of these decisions are being made with regard to the question of how do I think about my mortality, my finitude? Uh, younger folks, not so much. So I've had people say to me, I had terrible COVID, especially in the pre-vaccine era. Um, I uh, was hospitalized, you know, I'm in my forties. It scared me out of my mind. And I say, how did that affect your view of your finitude and the responses? I still try not to think about it. Uh, I just want to get through this. I hope I don't have long COVID. I need to get my energy back. So I, yeah, it's been interesting. I, I had hoped that more young people would be interested in uh, young by young. I mean, under age 70, say, um, but I think they're, we're just so um, formed not to really want to surrender to weakness and weakness and human finitude is seen as sort of the ultimate weakness, right? Death is, is a loss. It's you've lost. Um, unfortunately, that's the view. Uh, so thinking differently about how we can approach sort of our finitude and the end of our lives with strength, with, um, and by strength, I mean, it's, it's a different sort of strength, right? It's a, it's the strength that comes from having given it forethought, having prepared, having developed the sort of character that we would want to be known for uh, even after we're dead. So different way to approach the end of life for sure. Great. Thank you so much, Lydia. appreciate you taking the time today. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Aaron. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn about our programs, events, podcasts, and more.